Brian Kermelitic, thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au. Today we are speaking with Aidan Mullen, the Interface Engineering and Sustainability Manager, about company initiatives, processes, methods, and where the evolution of technology for flooring is headed. Interface, of course, is a global flooring company specialising in uh, carbon-neutral tile and, and resilient flooring, including luxury vinyl tile and Nora rubber flooring. So, welcome Aidan Mullen. Uh, can you tell me a bit about Interface yourself and, of course, your role there? Well, of course, Interface is a, a, a global company, uh, very much specialising in the manufacture and supply of resilient flooring, ostensibly to the commercial markets. But here in Australia, we, we've segmented much more. We're in hospitality, education, etc., uh, uh, etc. Et um, and of course, Interface has been around for a long time. I mean, initially started up by Ray Anderson back in '73. Uh, and then you had Ray's uh, amazing spear in the chest epiphany in 84, where he had sort of a mid-course correction and changed the whole direction of the company regarding giving it a purpose. In other words, that we would do no harm to the environment, to our business activities. And, you know, I joined the company myself uh, about 10 years ago, August 2010. And initially I was a bit sceptical about this, sort of the, the green credentials that Interface held. Um, but within months of joining the company, I realized that this was a company with purpose. And for me, you know, while I love the design we sell, um, when I love the people in the company, I just really what gets me out of bed in the morning is the purpose that underpins everything we do. Right? And that's that's key. I'm a chemical engineer. Effectively, my, my career started in the petrochemical industry, interestingly enough. Okay. Uh, and one of the key tenets of, of Rea's mission was to cut that umbilical cord to petrochemicals. Uh, and that suited me fine because I moved from petrochemicals into phytomedicines and now I'm in the carpet industry. Uh, so, you know, it's great to be here and it's great to be working with a company that has a sense of purpose and, and a sense of doing the right thing. Interesting, your role says sustainability manager. I mean, I don't normally, ironically, even these days come across people with that, with that uh, name on their business card. Um, did the role exist before you arrived at Interface, and, and and you know how long has it has it been uh, has that role been focused within the company? Oh, look, very much so. Within Interface, uh, we've had sustainability managers really, I'd say, very early on in our sort of journey into Mission Zero. So from mid nineties onwards, we were looking at sustainability. Might have been called something different back then. I thought, I, I'm not sure, uh, but certainly there was a sustainability manager here at Minto previous to my uh, arrival. And I took up the reins from him. And, and initially, my, my whole input was about maintaining uh, that culture that we actually have around Mission Zero and around sustainability within the organization. You know, people often talk about, oh, sustainability is in our DNA. And, and Ray Anderson would have been quoted as saying that. But when you look at what it means and when you look at what purpose means, it's in everybody's DNA. It's a question of just being the catalyst to tap into that, the spark that ignites it. Everybody's in the same boat here. We're on the same planet. So it's true to say that sustainability is in everyone's DNA. But certainly within Interface, we've tapped into that and made it part of our culture. Okay. Well, that, that, so, that, so let's say in the time that you've been in business, let, let's talk about the, the whole industry for a moment. Then. Sure. Um, have you seen the carpet tile or the flooring industry develop uh, more towards a, a 
sustainable sort of uh, outcome or, or, or is it or, or is it a little bit more sporadic and not industry-wide? Look, I think actually because of Ray Anderson's initial, as it's a spear in the chest of epiphany, and, and this initiative to change from a take-make-waste model to one that's cyclical, i.e. emulate nature, waste becomes food, um, he took the leadership in that. And really within the flooring industry, I think interfaces set basically the gold standard. And the flooring industry itself is way ahead of most industries when it comes to sustainability. And I think that's all down to Ray's leadership in the early sort of uh, uh, 19 or 2019, uh, or 19, I'm losing track of time here. Uh, we're in another century, 29, uh, 1994 onwards. Um, and I think having that leadership, all other companies, competitors with ourselves, uh, have, have followed suit. Uh, and, and really the influence that Interface has has gone way beyond the boundaries of the factory itself. So I would say, you know, when you actually look at it and when you look at what's out there at the moment regarding interiors, flooring is right out of the front when it comes to sustainability. Okay, so getting back to Interface then, um, let's talk about um, considerations for material selection. Uh, what does carbon neutral mean actually in terms of a flooring company? Um, and you know, also, I've noticed a lot of flooring has you know, label certifications, yada yada, and you know, designed to align with the carbon positive roadmap. How does um, that all fit in with what Interface does? Look, I suppose first and foremost, you know, certifications aside and labels and standards and that, Interface has always taken the role of, first of all, leadership. What are we, what are we doing here? So we were very, very much aware that we're working with limited resources, that we have to change the way we do things. Uh, and then when we look at the materials we use in our product, we basically look at it through three lenses. Green chemistry, is it healthy for human and environment? Secondly, embodied carbon. This is so important to us now because obviously climate change is the biggest impact on human health. It's the biggest threat we face. So therefore embodied carbon within the product is so important. And thirdly, circular economy. You know, if you are working with limited resources, you really actually have to cut that umbilical cord to the petrochemicals, as I said earlier, and start working with materials that already exist. So with those three lenses, we have developed our processes and our products. And I think that's so important. And of course, along the way, to have them accepted, uh, you must be transparent in what you do. So we have certifications. You know, you've got your type one, type two, type three eco-labels. We have all the type one eco-labels. And they're really good. They're, they're very, very vital in our industry to make sure that when someone's selecting a product, they know it's fit for purpose, it's not toxic, it's healthy for ha uh, human health and environmental health. That's important. I think for us, the key is the type three eco-label, really the environmental product declaration, which basically puts up front, we work with a badge of, as a badge of honor, what our environmental impacts are for our product. Not saying whether it's good, bad or indifferent, but it says these are the impacts from our product. The emissions at every stage of that product's life cycle are detailed within that document and they're published uh, and it's for public access. And I think this is a great thing because it gives the person who are, is selecting materials for their, their building or their project, whether it's an interior fit out or whatever, they can look at the raw materials and go, yeah, look, these are the impacts of this material. It's third-party verified scientific data and it's comparing apples with apples. It's great. Is that unique to Interface? Not really, uh, although having said that, uh, I believe we were the first 
company in North America, flooring company in North America, to actually put EPDs out there. And this was back in 2011. So I used to refer to it as sort of clapping with one hand. We had our potentials up front. We had nothing to compare with. Now it is they're ubiquitous. EPDs are everywhere. And if you look at anyone who is serious about heading for a, a net zero future, uh, particularly within the built environment, then EPDs are vital to that. So anyone who doesn't have a, an EPD for their product probably won't get that product accepted by uh, um, discerning builders, architects and designers. Um, you talk about commissioners being a climate take back. I believe that's, that's the terminology you use. What does this entail? And can you provide more detail about this, this, this sustainability strategy? And does it also extend beyond just manufacturing and, and, and post disposal or post use disposal rather? Sure. Look, we started out with Mission Zero, and this was really Ray's uh, initiative and his, his, his journey to uh, bring the company to a position where it's doing no harm to the environment. Now, he set a deal of 2020 on that, and we, were, we celebrated success in achieving our Mission Zero goals last year, November 2019. So, but back in 2016, we had a new CEO on board, and he basically asked the employee the questions, we're, we're getting to the stage where, you know, we're coming close to getting our Mission Zero goals. What are we going to do next? And doing a survey globally to all our companies, two responses came back. One, it must be an audacious goal like Mission Zero, you know? negative impact on the environment. Secondly, um, it has to be restorative because at that stage we saw that doing no harm was not good enough. We really had to become restorative. And if you look at architects to Claire, really they look at regenerative design. We're talking the same thing. So repairing the damage that we've done. So we came to that realization and that's where we kicked off the next stage of our, our journey. And we call that climate take back. Um, and it is a plan. And it's a plan that requires a lot more collaboration than Mission Zero. Mission Zero, we could achieve 80% of it really on our own and working with our suppliers. But when you're looking at climate, a carpet company, even one uh, like Interface, is not going to change the world in that respect. It's going to require radical collaboration. So there are four real elements to climate take back. First, live zero. That means eliminate your waste, get your circular economy going, doing no harm. That's what that's about. The next one, we call it love carbon. And this is really seeing carbon uh, not as a challenge, which it is at the moment, but we see it as an opportunity. So carbon is a, a fundamental building block of life. If we can actually look at the carbon that is accumulating in our atmosphere due to our activities and actions, we believe we can take that back. And we can actually get that into durable materials that we can then make products with. And that's exactly what we're doing with the new product launch that we're having later this year, in the US and next year here in Australia, where we're going to introduce a carbon negative tile. Third one, let nature cool. We have to stop deforestation, polluting our oceans. We have to give nature the ability to breathe more. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, through all our activities, uh, we've actually overloaded nature. Nature has a natural cycle for removing carbon from the atmosphere. We call it photosynthesis through the oceans, through our forests. Uh, and we really have to be able to get back to letting nature cool so we can have a biosphere that's fit for life. And the fourth one, which is very important, is leading the industrial revolution. And that really is about radical collaboration. That's about going beyond the boundaries of our manufacturing facilities, our flowing companies. That's involving stakeholders and government, education, community. That's what it's about. And we firmly believe that there's a precedent for taking climate back. 
holding the ozone layer is a great example. And we believe that if we change climate by accident, we can change it back with intent. This is the issue. The manufacturers will go, no, it's not CFCs. It's a bit like the tobacco industry. No, it's not the tobacco industry. It's a bit now like the fossil fuel industry. No, it's not us. We are not doing this. This is a natural event, you know, and carbon is good for you. Um, but at the time, there was real leadership there. Uh, not two of my favorite people, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. But my God, didn't they do a good job in regulating CFCs and pushing regulation to a, to, to a, to a point where with the, the, the Montreal Protocol Hundreds of chemicals were then banned and reduced. So, you know, I think it's just the, the proof is in the action and the leadership. That's really the analogy I draw. We need leadership. It's interesting, though, that that, that side of, of politics was on, on the forefront of leadership for, the for you know, pushing the Montreal Protocol. protocol. Mm-hmm. Now, within within two decades, they actually flipped and, be, and became the, you know, the, the, the naysayers of, 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 of climate change, which is really an interesting change in, in perspective don't you think yes and i think you know and again similar comparisons with the present covid uh, crisis um believe the sciences work off the data you know it's about measurement and it's about coming to conclusions scientific conclusions about root cause analysis what's, what's the cause of this then you can do something about it rather than wringing your hands or denial i think that's exactly the point i'd make I'm, I've got to say that I saw, I saw an, uh, a Facebook meme just recently that both climate change and COVID are caused by farting cows. Um, <laughs> with, with, um, the, well, while we talk about the, the, the global thing, so overall, what, does, what role does flooring play in the level of waste generated by the building, so well, the building construction design, you know, the, the, the industry rather? And, I mean, well, that sector apparently itself is a 25 to 35% of all landfill waste, is it not? Or thereabouts, roughly. Um, what is, is there a figure for how much flooring takes up of that or contributes to that? Look, again, it's very, very hard sometimes to get the, the, the data. And, and again, you know, I'm not sure it's been uh, um, analyzed that closely here in Australia, but it's probably looking at, you know, 30 million square meters a year going to landfill. Okay. That, that's a figure that I've heard quoted, um, which is crazy. Now, you could argue that, okay, that material is inert. You're going to put it in a hole in the ground. It's not going to do no harm. Super. That's fine. But where, how do you replace that material? You extract more oil and you manufacture more polymers to produce more carpet or whatever. And, and that really is the issue. So, and it's morally wrong to have that amount of waste that could be actually reused. And I think Interface always had this vision. And again, you know, Ray Anderson was excellent at putting it in perspective. He saw a future where you take materials that already exist and using sunshine, renewable energy, you could create new products. Uh, And that was what spurred him on to thinking, right, we'd get all that carpet. Landfills will be the mines of the future. You'll be going to landfills if you know where the stuff has gone and digging up raw materials that you can actually reuse if you've developed a process. But rather than wait till then, the key is to stop it going there in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, we, we have a number of, of, of operations that we use here. We have our factories to zero campaign where eliminating the waste, first and foremost, is the, the priority. So it's okay to say, oh, we produced this waste, but we recycled it. So even recycling for me is waste because we shouldn't have produced that waste in the first place. 
But then what happens to your, your product at its end of life? Um, that's a valuable raw material. And really what you should do for a true circular economy is maintain ownership of that. So get it back at its end of life and reuse it. And that's exactly what we've done with our re-entry process. And we're scaling that up since we developed that in the early 2000s to the point where we've actually got our own system here in Australia to take carbon back. think that perhaps the, the pandemic is actually helping lower the amount of waste because there's a low, lower need? I, first, I should ask, are you seeing a lower need for fluoride? That's a very leading question, and I'm just really happy to answer, sort of champing up the bit here. We manufacture here in Australia, and I have to say this, Chief Franco, we've been running pretty flat out here in our, in our operation here, manufacturing here in Sydney. Um, and, and we're... we're why we're seeing globally that sort of big drops elsewhere here in Australia because the pandemic has been managed. And I think this is key. Um, there, there, there is a, a lot more confidence out there in the market. Uh, and while we are seeing some decreases against last year, we're seeing increases in some of the segments, decreases in other. But in other ways, we're actually motoring along very, very nicely. And in fact, I think, you know, the pandemic has sort of put the focus on Australian manufacturing, you know, how do you get stuff in here? How do you get it in fast? And I think we picked up a lot of business because of that, because we're here. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, the pandemic would give us a lot of lessons about how we should live once we start to come out of it. It's so probably a bit early to say where the flooring industry will be in a year, two, three years time, you know, given the whole commuting thing, you know, people working from home. Yeah. But I firmly believe we're social animals. Uh, we need to be working together. Um, while some people can work from home, I think there will be a lot of time spent still in the workplace. And I think really that won't affect, I think, the commercial aspect of industry moving forward. On that point, has, has the pandemic, and, and, you know, and the and ensuing, you know, sort of social distancing, yada, yada ideas, has that actually affected the way, you know, you go about your work, your daily work? I'll give an example. I do an awful lot of sustainability training with our sales and marketing teams. And I've actually found that it has improved the ability of people to sit there, join a team session um, and, and, and get more interactive. Whereas when you're sitting around a big table, sometimes people won't put up their hand and ask a question. They may be reluctant to step out. But when you're on teams, you get your chats and that going. That's pretty, pretty cool. It also means the meetings are on time, succinct, and they finish on time, you know? Um, uh, and and you, I think even from a point of time management, you can actually organize it a bit better. You're not sitting in a meeting room waiting for people to arrive. People tend to be a lot more punctual, I have found, by a Zoom and Teams. But I still believe you do need that face-to-face -face interaction. And a lot of our employees would feel that. Here in manufacturing, everybody comes to work every day. They clock in, they go through all the routines, managing how we actually uh, avoid uh, any risk of infection due to the pandemic. We haven't had one case. Uh, but on the other side, uh, the, the, the commercial teams who are actually out there are very much, particularly in Victoria, restricted to home. Uh, and that's difficult, especially in a business like that. If you're selling, you really do need to stand face to face with clients. So there are horses for courses. Some people can work very well from home. I, I would state IT probably, uh, more than likely uh, even customer service people. They're a voice on a phone. 
uh, and they have access to all the data. So really, they do not have to be here. And, and sometimes working from home means less interference from others or time stealers walking past your desk. So there, there's a lots of advantages, but I think the big disadvantage is we're social animals, we need human interaction. Uh, and I think you'll see that coming back to mo- probably normality as pre-COVID. Let's talk about the future a bit. So, I, I, you know, in, 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 in the magazine and I, over the years, you know, we've written and heard a lot about smart buildings and smart windows and smart toilets and smart roofs even. Right? Yes. Um, will we ever see a smart floor? Look, uh, you know, Interface has sat on a lot of patents over the years with, with, with sort of really cute ideas about flooring. Um, I think through design, there's an element there. I mean, for instance, through, during the present crisis, we've developed Wayfinder tiles that people can pick up a tile from the floor and put in arrows. You can have zones that are safe zones and all the rest of it. So you can actually mark your floor to show where you should stand or shouldn't stand or do anything that would enhance or, or, or support social distancing at the moment. The floor is very flexible from that point of view. I think the smartness really comes from the materials that are used in it. Uh, and the point I made earlier, uh, you know, we've gone to the point where we're doing no harm. So we've reduced our carbon footprint by 74% at this stage since we started the journey 25 years ago. Wow. Uh, we impressive, actually. It, it actually, I, I'm still impressed by the stats and I rub shoulders with sustainability managers from a lot of companies. That is an imperative because, you know, we talked earlier about carbon neutral and carbon neutral floors. Offsets are really useful mechanisms for going above and beyond uh, your, your, your journey towards reducing your impact on the environment. But they're not a substitute for reducing your emissions. And for us, we introduced carbon neutral floors right across the full life cycle of the product from extraction to end of life. So they're 100% carbon neutral, but that's about 25% of our emissions that we actually offset. That's a stepping stone for us to go into the next stage, where we're starting to use some very innovative materials in our carpet to become carbon negative. So we're using nature, bio-based composites, to produce a carbon negative carpet tile, which we are launching commercially into the market in the US this month and next year in Australia. So I think that's where the smartness lies in our product. Um, Obviously, when Ray Anderson thought of the carpet tile initially, he thought, yeah, this is the office of the future. You drop your tea on this tile, I'd take it up and I'd put a new tile down. Another area where it was very smart, I thought, um, was biomimetic design where, where, you know, we emulated nature. We went for the first random design in the carpet design. And from a sustainability point of view, an environmental impact point of view, that was a very successful project because by going to a random design, it meant we used less product to cover a floor. There was less installation offcuts, so less waste per installation. So you go from 15% waste down to 2% waste. Uh, that meant that we had to produce less carpet to cover a floor. So just by design, we're reducing our impact. So it's not all technical engineering stuff. Design plays a big part in it well. And I'm not sure that answers your question on smartness. It but does, It does kind of. That's yeah. I, I was probably more going down down the down the tech path, but that's that's. I mean, the word smart can, has got a lot of connotations and a, and a lot of angles and a lot of meanings. So that, that's actually that's interesting what you said. So mm. on that point, then, you know, would you say that flooring is kind of like the quiet achiever when it comes to you know um, sustainability? I mean, we hear a lot about you know you know lowering our you know footprint in terms of our heating, our coal 
uh, yes. crop burning, our you know, you know, renewables, whatnot. But no one ever says, you know, well, well you know, how about our flooring? You know, <laughs> do you think perhaps it's the quiet achiever in the, in that respect? I, look, I, I I think it is. In fact, within the built environment, I think it's a well-known achiever rather than a quiet achiever because if you look at the journey towards net zero. And the GBCA has got their net zero roadmap set out. They're looking at 2030. So the built environment, as we know, is about 40% of our emissions, contributes about 40% of the emissions, of which about 11% of that, of that chunk is embodied carbon. So if I'm building a building and I'm trying to reduce the embodied carbon in my building, because once it's built, I can't take that carbon back. It's in the atmosphere. I'm going to look for materials with low embodied carbon. And in the flooring industry, that's what you start looking for. We'd had a great project with, with Lendlease uh, some years back, a uh, Barangaroo project, uh, probably 160,000 square meters, something like that. Right. And that was all carbon neutral. That contributed towards their goal of achieving a 20% reduction in embodied carbon versus business as usual operations. And therefore, it's like everything. We're a, a product. We're a material for the built environment. Uh, and, and the discerning architects, designers, and engineers are now looking at it from an embodied carbon point of view. So it's really important that you know um, we are transparent about that, and that we can actually stand up and verify the, the stats. So really, at the end of the day, we're, we're not sort of quiet at all about this. We're very much pushing. It's it's a badge of honour being transparent and saying, "Hey, look, we're we're one of the lowest carbon footprint products you're going to use." You know, there's the, there's, the, there's the documentation, there's your environmental product doc, uh, document. Uh, and, you know, if you're building an Australia, we manufacture an Australia. So there's lots of all the stuff that goes with that. Do you think that architects and designers and specifiers take that into account when they, when they um, you know, um, specify certain products and or materials? I have to put my hand on my heart and say I feel for those people out there because if you look at the plethora of certifications, claims and counterclaims that float around out there in the market, it must be very, very confusing. But to answer your question, I believe, yes, more and more. Uh, embodied carbon is becoming a, a big focus, and more and more they're looking at environmental product declarations, and more and more they're looking towards leadership from uh, organisations like Green Building Council and Architects to Care Movement itself would be focused on that. I am aware that a lot of practices are now going carbon neutral which is really a big transformation compared to three, four years ago. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Right. Um, well, uh, until next time, thank you very much, Aidan Mullen from Interface. Um, and uh, until next time, goodbye. Cheers, Frank. A pleasure being with you. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.